Radio, CIUT 89.5, the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect of CIUT-FM. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, and this is uh, kind of a wrap-up show. Um, that was the year that was, uh, 2021. Um, here we are. It's January the 4th. And uh, what do we think of that year? And to help me with that is our left, left, or leftist panel. And today we have a new person on that panel. We're delighted, Rima Burns-McGowan. She is the member of provincial parliament for Beaches East York. And we have Alex Grant, uh, who's been on uh, this panel a number of times, editor of Fight Bag Magazine, and um, and of course, part of Marxist.ca. So um, in contrast to what you're hearing on mainstream media, we are the left, left, or left panel on the Radical Reverend show. Uh, and by the way, thank you for all who've contributed to keeping this show on the air and this station on the air, CIUT uh, 89.5 FM, the last independent uh, listener supported station left in the GTA. So thank you for that. Uh, and hope you're safe out there. We're going to start by talking about that because what else do people talk about? We're so tired of talking about it, but we will. And that is the latest scariant, um, as I call them, uh, Omicron, that is now ripping through uh, the city. Um, I think the last uh, the last stats I saw were almost a 30% uh, positivity rate for those that are lucky enough to be able to be tested. Um, so Rima, maybe I'll start with you. Just jump in. Um, thoughts about this latest situation and how did we get here? What went wrong? What happened? Talk to so, me. I am, I'm boiling mad right now. Absolutely boiling mad. I have had, um, so I'm also the critic for uh, poverty and homelessness. I've had folks who are coordinators for the drop-in network. Um, and as you know, the drop-in network is kind of the network of last resort. There, there aren't even beds there. People go when they, they need a place to be out of the cold and they sit in chairs. And these drop-in networks are across the city. They have no PPE. They have no N95 masks. There are vulnerable, vulnerable people in there and staff, and they've got nothing. And they're two weeks away from getting stuff from government. Two weeks away. So I'm out there, you know, trying to help source from private citizens. The hospital is Michael Guerin Hospital. These folks are heroes and they are stepping up and going into their reserves to help here. But this shouldn't be what this shouldn't be private citizens having me run around to their houses and pick up PPE and the hospital having to look into their resources to give um, drop in networks. This should not be what we're doing. This government has completely dropped this ball. We knew about this a month ago, more than a month ago, and they did nothing. They did nothing to step up boosters. They did nothing to get more um, PPE. They did nothing to ensure that everybody has access to a test. We can't get access to tests. There are no free rapid tests. We should all have free rapid tests. So I'm, you know, tearing out my hair. Yeah. Just before we go to you, Alex, uh, <laughs> I, I went for a long walk yesterday and took a photograph of just inside the Eaton Center is a for-profit uh, clinic where you can get a test, no waiting at all, um, a PCR test for $180 and up. 
by the way, and up. Uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, no waiting at all. $180 um, instead of standing in the cold for two hours. Uh, this, I mean, if we didn't think we had privatized healthcare, we certainly do now. Um, your thoughts on Omicron, this latest variant? Well, the Ford government has been uh, criminally negligent on this. Uh, but actually, if we broaden back, even Omicron itself, it was not inevitable. In fact, uh, I, I wrote an article about this back in June. Uh, you may not know uh, that before I uh, became a professional revolutionary, I was doing a, an evolutionary genetics PhD. So I wrote an article uh, uniting the sort of the science and the politics of it, uh, the, the evolutionary ge genetics of, uh, of SARS-CoV-2. And the reality is that the pharmaceutical corporations, Pfizer, Moderna, the rest of them, refusing to give access to vaccines to Africa, Asia, Latin America, were creating the ideal conditions for new variants. Utterly unnecessary and entirely due to the capitalist profit motive. And we don't need to be, we didn't need to be here. And, and they created those perfect conditions for a new variant, which, which is uh, an astounding, uh, for the science is amazing, you know, so like 30 plus mutations in this uh, variant. Uh, but now it, it, it is just so infectious and just ripping through populations. And, it, and, and yes, it's totally unnecessary. And they did nothing. So we first started hearing about this in mid-November. They did absolutely nothing. Uh, they could have been ramping up the boosters. Like in some ways, I feel conflicted about the boosters because those third doses should be going to Africa. Uh, but uh, now it's here, you have to get boosted. Uh, but uh, they did nothing. They sat in their hands and now these huge bottlenecks. And the bottlenecks is not in, in the West. It's not in the number of doses we have available. The bottlenecks is in the staffing, is in the nurses that they're not willing to hire and train and pay nurses and other healthcare workers sufficiently to reduce the bottlenecks. It is about people. It is about money. It is about collective agreements that this government does not want to get beyond the 1% pay, pay cap. And that's the that's what creates this crisis and, and it's profits before people. Again and again, the lesson of the pandemic profits before people for right-wing governments. Uh, just to, to, to uh, deep dive a little bit into what you were saying about the science, um, Alex, uh, uh, certainly uh, people will realize, I hope they realize that, you know, you don't need a, a PhD in science to recognize that where you have populations where the, the vaccination rate is very, very low, um, you're creating the perfect conditions for variants to develop, you know, over and above and around those, the vaccine immunity. So I just wanted to kind of make that clear um, and, and go back to you, Rima, on this. Um, uh, so profits before people uh, has been the town. I mean, we, we compare this to say maybe the polio vaccine. You know, I still have some people, uh, you know, that I know of who had polio, you know, or who were vaccinated, you know, who were part of the polio generation. Let's put it that way. A very different response back then. Um, the patent was given for a dollar, sold for a dollar. Um, what what about this patent, you know, uh, and, and we've had people no less than Bill Gates speak up in favor of patents. Um, what about this, you know, patents, patents before people as well as profits before people? 
Rima, weigh in. Oh, so Alex is exactly right. And the whole system, like all of these issues and the, the, in every stage, whether it's not paying nurses properly, whether it's not making sure that everybody has access to rapid tests, whether it's not making sure that everybody on the globe has access to vaccines, because this is a global issue, folks. Whether it's the way that we handled, um, we like, uh, Western governments handled, uh, including the Canadian government, handled the Omicron variant when it became apparent, which was to shut down travel. How was that going to do anything? And to shut off the very countries that the country and the countries around it that had discovered it, not where it was in the globe. I mean, it is a an illogical um, way of proceeding to solve a problem. When you put profits over people, it will always come back and bite you in the ass. Always, it always will. The only way that you ever solve these problems is to put people over profits and to do what is kind and what is right for the people who who need it. And that way, everybody will benefit. And if you don't do that, it will always come back. It will always cost economies and societies more. And not just in terms of doing the right thing, but actual dollars. It just makes no logical sense on a fiscal level or on a rightness level. Yeah, let's uh, speaking, by the way, if you're just tuned in on the Radical Reverend Show to Rima Burns-McGowan, uh, MPP, uh, Beaches East York, and Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back. Um, let's talk, let's use the R word here, racism. Um, I mean, certainly in terms of closing the borders was, you know, especially <laughs> against South Africans. Um, but meanwhile, South Africans were producing, I gather, the Johnson & Johnson uh, vaccine that they were exporting when they needed it at home for profit from that very country. Um, let's talk about racism in in the whole covid pandemic we i mean we know that you know uh you know uh, people who are racialized have been uh being infected at far greater levels than than people of privilege and that are white um set, uh, you know indigenous versus settlers etc alex talk about that yes it's, it's been a perpetual issue that a poor racialized people have faced the worst of it that and it is the it's all of the you know, systemic racism which you cannot take out outside of class as well the two are entirely uh, interchangeable because you end up in frontline workers um you know amazon workers the the bus driver driving the amazon workers to the mississauga warehouse there's over 700 people infected that bus driver got infected and died and that's the uh, situation of working class people, but you also, and racialized people, and you, but you also live in neighborhoods with poor housing, highly concentrated, so that if one person gets it, the entire family, and, and, and everybody, and potentially everybody on that elevator uh, also gets it. So it's entirely tied about. And then, and if you go into the world politics, yes, the, uh, the barriers to South Africa, and South Africa was being a good corporate citizen, if you like, in that they did the testing and then revealed it. Turned out, I think that Germany and Netherlands had also found Omicron, but kind of hit it. Uh, but you, you can't have the uh, such an easy racist um, bugbear with Germany and Netherlands. And, and yet, and yet they, they're immediately punished and, and for no effect, no effect, make absolutely no difference. 
uh, except make it so people don't share scientific information because they know that they'll get punished. Rima, the racist aspect of all of this. Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, in, in, on the global levels, South Africa, the way that South Africa was punished as opposed to the Netherlands, which also had cases from the get-go. How does this make any sense? Um, the, way that, the way that racialized and Black uh, and Indigenous communities also suffered disproportionately during and continue to suffer. First of all, they're the first folks whose wages get cut. They're the folks who are being evicted. They're the folks who are ending up disproportionately in encampments from which they are brutally cleared. Um, in, and it just, the cycle goes on and on and on. And there is zero recognition of this. And the, the provincial government crows how it gave, um, first it was a million and a half dollars to uh, address the problem that racialized that black communities faced, and then they upped it to three million dollars. So basically, the cost of two houses um, in Toronto. Like, what is that supposed to do? There's no even though people keep telling them this is a systemic issue and you have to deal with it on a systemic basis. There's it doesn't permeate, and they don't treat it that way. The racism is absolutely huge, and the performativity. So they'll. They'll do things that are that gesture towards, but they do nothing. They do nothing substantive, and it's absolutely disgusting. Yes, uh, Alex. Yeah, just uh, just a small anecdote. Uh, so, even I, I lined up for my booster shot, and uh, I got there at seven thirty in the morning, and I was lined up for four hours wearing my snow pants with a cup of tea and a camp chair uh, and everything. But everybody in line was. Um, yeah, middle age and white collar. Every middle and white, overwhelmingly. Because who, uh, it sucks lining up in the cold for four hours, but if you've got a, a look after kids, if you've got a service sector job, if you've got, if you don't have the internet skills uh, to find out wh even where these booster shots are being handed out, then you can't get them. So it was the line was full of people who arguably weren't in the in the most exposed, and the people who really need these booster shots. There's absolutely no way they'd get to the front of that line. They they wouldn't be in the conditions to be able to do so, and it's impossible to get next to impossible to get an appointment before February. Yeah, Rima. So I just want to say again, another shout out to the local hospital here, Michael Guerin Hospital, which has been going out of its way to ensure that folks who are in racialized communities in vulnerable beaches. East York has some of the deepest pockets of poverty in the city, even though they're relatively narrow and not as broad as they are in other places. But it's the hospital that's been going out of its way to to narrow those gaps. It's not anything about the government's planning. And that shouldn't be falling on them. It shouldn't be falling on individual citizens to help to figure this out. It should be a government thinking about how does this work? How do we lift up the most vulnerable am among us for everybody's good? Yeah, let's let's uh, just briefly before we leave uh, this topic talk about um, those frontline healthcare workers. Let's talk about nurses uh, who've been uh, limited to a one percent pay raise. I am hearing from them. 
constantly on Twitter. Um, the situations for them are horrible. Uh, almost all hospitals are now uh, very understaffed, like sometimes 50% of uh, nurses, sometimes they're looking after up to, I've heard 23 patients. Um, PPE is in, in short supply, good PPE. Even ventilation in some of our you know, well-known hospitals isn't up to standards that it should be. Um, nurses are going back now who have been exposed to COVID and they're back working. Um, and it seems like nobody's listening as they retire, if they can quit, if they are able. Um, you know, let's just talk about nursing and not only nurses, of course, PSWs, others who are working in long-term care. Again, many of these racialized and many, most of them women um, and the situations that they're going into. Uh, uh, yeah, um, Alex, talk about that for a minute. These are the, the low people on the healthcare totem pole. And yes, of course, the MS. Yes, and governments just don't want to put pay for it and they don't want to prepare for it. That again, it's like we've been doing this for two years now almost. Uh, well, after th 30 years of underfunding in healthcare, and but then two years of pandemic, th there's been more than enough time to ramp up the training and the hiring of healthcare workers and nurses. And, and you've got to pay these people. Uh, my partner's a nurse, uh, but sh she works uh, an office job, right? And all of her fr nursing friends who were uh, working frontline nursing said, this is insane. And they're all uh, moving to other parts of healthcare because why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you when the government clearly doesn't care and, and you're just going to get infected and disrespected uh, in Quebec and now they're, they're, they're making healthcare workers go back to work when they're positive. And, and, and that's an, an, an insane solution to an insane problem which didn't need to happen. And yeah, so th this is capitalism. This is budget cuts. This is austerity. This is right-wing governments. This, this, and then it, this is infection and profiteering. This is what and, you get. And, and this is also privatization, if I may weigh yes. in. I mean, we're seeing some of the nurses are saying they're working next to agency nurses sent by private agencies who are making more than them. Um, and of course, Ford asked them to go for nothing to volunteer to provide vaccinations, whereas doctors are getting paid $200 a day to do it. I mean, so you've got, um, you've got this kind of privatization in the background of all this, Rima. I, I just sat in committee hearings for the long-term care bill where there were PSWs and families in tears telling their stories um, and the government and about exactly this, that if you're going to fix the system, you have to begin with the labor. You have to begin by making sure that people are properly paid. You have to make sure that they have benefits, that they have some sense of security, that they're working in one solid place that they can keep going back to, that the profiteering company isn't benefiting by hiring contract labor and undermining its own um its own PSWs. You have to begin in the hospitals by paying nurses properly. How do you not understand that? It is so fundamental. We've had a two-year demonstration of that. And of course, nurses are fleeing because as Alex just said, why would you stay in a place where you run the risk of becoming ill, debilitated, um, becoming infecting your family and not being paid well for it? Why would you do that? 
we're rational economic beings, we're going to not make those choices, even if you're looking at this from an economic perspective. And the reason I keep bringing that up is because I want to keep making the point that it is terrible fiscal management as well as terrible humanity. And it can be fixed. We can do things differently. We can always put people over profits that will end up benefiting everybody. Yes, let's um, uh, hear again, if you've just tuned in with Alex Grant, editor of Fight Back and Rima Burns-McGowan, who is the MPP for Beaches East York. Um, let's move on um, to uh, that other topic that you cannot ignore right now. It's cold outside, maybe not as cold as it should be. We have, after all, climate change on our hands, but we have a homelessness crisis in the city, not just in the city right across the country, um, but certainly it's very, very evident as you step over bodies in the street in downtown Toronto. Um, uh, now, I, I'll just jump in with my own tale. Um, I was, when I was first elected, uh, when I was an MPP, uh, the housing critic. And I do remember back then with a Liberal majority government asking, having figures to show the housing minister that at that point, I think it was $150 a day to keep somebody in a shelter. That's the real cost, all in with staff, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, you know, this is absurd. Um, surely we can house people in permanent housing for less. Of course, and, and the housing minister admitted it, said, yeah, I know it's strange, isn't it? <laughs> like, I had no power to do anything about it. Um, so, so, but of course, what we know is that it takes, just like childcare and other systemic issues, it takes a lot of money up front to go in and then it takes a while to get the money out in a sense of it paying for itself, but it would. And had we started this back a while, it would have. Um, uh, so what are solutions, problems, housing and homelessness, Rima? So obviously we need to build housing as though our lives depend upon it because they do. And then while we are waiting for that housing, we need to take care of people in ways that work for them. And so we need to actually, I mean, there are, there are roadmaps that folks have put out there that if we followed them, people would be cared for while we were building that housing and building it as fast as we possibly can. We know this and it's not, again, it's not only the right thing to do, it's the fiscally smart thing to do, because as you just pointed out, it's way more expensive uh, to kick people out of encampments um, by using the police budget than it is to house people permanently, as opposed to trying to, to put them in congregate settings where they're not particularly safe or that don't um, serve them and where which are dangerous uh, shelter hotels which are dangerous in their own ways for many people so it just makes it makes sense it it, this should we should be treating this like any war effort we should be having all three levels of government coordinating because it's a crisis across the country it disproportionately affects uh, black and indigenous and other racialized um, peoples this is an ongoing um, uh, symptom of colonial violence which has not stopped and it one of the things that really sends me up the wall is when you have politicians um, paying homage to the children who are the the buried the the bodies of children in residential schools and yet kicking people out of encampments this makes absolutely no sense at all and we have to I think it is our job to keep connecting these dots until that narrative shifts 
lights so that people cannot see homelessness as the result of personal bad choices, but is what happens when a capitalist system keeps um, kicking people out. You know, we were fighting like tigers to keep people housed in Beaches East York against these evictions. We managed it. We got the evictions tossed out. But we had those financialized landlords standing there and saying, why should we not continue to do business as usual? So part of the issue is going back and attacking the root of the financialization of housing. We also know how to do that and we should be doing it. It's absolutely crucial. Otherwise this stuff will keep happening. Alex, homelessness. Well, I, I was part of a group uh, Labour against uh, Moss Park evictions. And I'm proud to say that to us, together with other groups, scared off uh, John Tory and, and, and the city from doing a mass eviction at Moss Park. And, and, they, stop, and they stopped after those horrendous mass evictions prior. But uh, as it's been said, that the cost of... Uh, policing and hospital visits and all of the rest of it of homelessness is more than the cost of actually housing people. And and you have to ask yourself, then why don't we house people? And you may be surprised to hear me say this, it comes back to capitalism. That you, you can't just give away housing because then that stops the parasitic landlords from profiteering over what is essential need for human beings. Shelter. We cannot live without shelter. And uh, and you have the landlord class that is there acting as gatekeeper and profiteering off the labor, the surplus labor of working class people. And when you have that, a certain sector of the population will be forced out of the cost of, of housing, which is now ridiculous. Utterly ridiculous. It's gone. It's gone through the uh, roof. Yeah, I, I, I guess Rima, if you, if you want to butt in, I, I got a bit more to say, but I'll let you butt in. No, so- no. I mean, all I was going to say was I agree with you completely, and that's why I think it's imperative that we push at this narrative um, and and change the narrative so that it is unpalatable and unacceptable for any political party to allow this to continue. Because you're right about the root of the problem. But we have to create within the framework that we're working with um, an, an unacceptability for this to continue. Yeah. Well, well, actually, uh, yeah, Rima, earlier on, you talked about building housing and that is the solution. But it's not just build any housing because, uh, you know, I think we've all seen uh, that you, uh, you, know, you, you drop an acorn and a condo immediately pops up in Toronto. So there's condos, condos everywhere. In fact, there are 65,000 empty condos in Toronto, where there are 10,000 street involved homeless people in Toronto. You could house those 10,000 street involved people overnight, six times over. It's insane. It's insane. So that's why it's not just build housing, it's build social housing has to be social housing it has to be actually not affordable housing that's another con the talk about affordable housing affordable housing it's like was it 10 or 20 percent below market it's still ridiculously expensive 
No, it needs to be rent geared to income. It needs to be socially owned and operated, either owned by the government or co-op or stuff like that. And, uh, and, and proper at the actual cost, right? Not as a profiteering investment, parasitic investment, frankly. That's, that's why it's so unaffordable. The rent is too damn high. It's really interesting. I couldn't agree more. No. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> interesting here on left, left or leftist panel, um, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, Rima Burns-McGowan from Beaches East Jerk, MPP, and Alex Grant, uh, editor at Fight Back, and your host here, Sherry DeNovo. Um, it, it's interesting that I remember doing a uh, an evening on housing in uh, Parkdale High Park back in the day, and David Crombie, conservative mayor, of an at the time conservative province, conservative federal government um, oversaw, was part of the group that brought us the St. Lawrence uh, uh, project redevelopment. And I asked this conservative, <laughs> which was arguably one of the best redevelopments that have happened in the city still, that was in the seventies, you know, how did they start? And he said, with a co-op. He said, you start with co-ops, you start with the co-op concept, which is what I think we're all talking about here is uh, owned, you know, property co-jointly owned. Um, and I grew up in this town where we knew the people, we knew them by name, people who were on the street, there weren't that many of them. Um, and what was the difference? First of all, rich people paid taxes back then. Um, there was way more money in government. And second of all, um, you could live on what we called welfare back then. It was actually conceivable to rent a place and go to school, because I know because I did. Um, and um, and that's how it's changed. So uh, so so let's talk about just just to not leave this this uh, topic for a moment, let's talk about solutions here. Um, and Alex, you've talked about it. Let's put these people. So how do you overcome the developer class? Um, I'll go back to you, Alex, and then Rima after that. Well, I'm in favor of expropriating them. Uh, human need becomes comes before profits. And expropriate them, you get all the, uh, the resources and the expertise, and you build social housing. That, that's how you solve the crisis. Now you could say that's very radical. It is very radical. It's uh, what's what's better. Uh, do you care about these millionaires and billionaires in their uh, BMWs and Mercedes and, and their very, very nice housing? Or do you care about people on the streets who are dying? Actually, I just heard on the radio this morning that there is outbreaks in all of the shelters. And so there's an exodus from the shelters into the parks because the parks are safer than the shelters because there's, there's an Omicron outbreaks there. And who do you care more about? Who do you care more about? I care about the people on the streets. That's who I care about. And if, if you turn some billionaires into millionaires, oh, I'm sorry, I'm okay with that. I could live with that. I can live with that. Uh, can you live with people in the streets? Can you live with people in the parks? Ask yourself. Rima, uh, solutions to the crisis. Again, so I, I completely agree. We desperately need RGI housing. And there are so many things that you can do to tackle this financialization of housing, which is occurring. It is really actually a very serious issue. And it isn't equally a problem across Canada. There are certain provinces which are way worse and ours, of course, is one of them. And that's partly because we don't have proper rent stabilization uh, measures in place. So, for instance, um, 
rent control needs to follow the unit and not the person. And in, pro in provinces where that happens, these financialized landlords are way less active. So it's really important that we take the steps that academics have suggested that we know the policy prescriptions that are out there to ensure that we don't have this kind of financialization where we don't have housing being looked at as an extractive industry like mining or whatever, because that's where we're no longer looking at housing as a human right. We have to come again. We need this all governments on deck looking at this as a kind of this is a this is a natural disaster but it's not a natural disaster it's a human made disaster it can be fixed and it needs to be fixed because otherwise the scale of misery is just going to continue to expand exponentially and it doesn't help of course we have an exodus from um up from shelters um, uh, because there are congregate setting that people can leave from but then we have people dying of exposure and we have people dying of um, of overdoses, which is also unnecessary. We could also tackle that. So all of these issues need to be handled. Again, if you just start looking at people first over profit, as Alex has suggested, um, you will you will find methods to be able to solve your problem. Let's move on now. We're uh, the left, left or leftist panel here on the Radical Reverend Show. Um, in, a, in a few days, uh, we are going to see schools, something's going to happen. Uh, we'll hear maybe this, uh, we'll hear maybe by the time this is aired, um, because this is being aired on the 4th, so we'll know by then. Uh, but if they do open or if they don't open, um, schooling is an issue. Uh, we've seen uh, surges in pediatric units of children in the United States, France, and the UK, uh, especially with Omicron. Um, uh, more and more children are in uh, pediatric units, um, and also those who are asymptomatic or, or have mild symptoms, we're seeing long COVID and symptoms of long COVID, COVID in our children. So it's a serious issue, as well as educators, of course, and all those who work in schools. Um, again, we've got Rima Burns-McGowan on our panel today, and we've got Alex Grant, um, Alex from Fight Back, and Rima MPP for Beaches East York. I'm going to go to you, Alex, as the father of small children. Um, what, uh, you know, is school, let, let's assume schools open. Um, what's the problem? Let's assume schools, even if they open close soon without breaks, which undoubtedly many of them will, what's the answer to schooling period? Yeah, well, well I think if, if they keep the schools open, I think they'll be closed in a week. Uh, there was a, a infected kid in my son's class in the last week of term before the break. And, and, and now the cases are even higher. So I, I can only imagine that you could be back and then there'll be an outbreak and then schools would be closed anyway. Uh, and the the point is not whether schools should be open and closed. Uh, the point is, is they should have done what is necessary to admit that it would have been possible for them to stay open. And where, where it, all the PPE reduced the class sizes to 15, uh, all proper ventilation, HEPA filter, yeah, all, all the necessary filtering, and, and all of that, again, government has done nothing. In fact, I think, didn't they get billions of dollars from the federal government and they just sat on it and didn't do anything? Uh, re regular rapid testing, all of that stuff, because it is 
keeping schools open is an important issue. It's good for the, the health and mental and physical health of the students uh, and, and also the conditions of life for the parents. So it should do everything possible to keep schools open. But, you know, a, a whole bunch of uh, doctors were saying, why are we having 10,000 people in a Raptors game? And 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 shut it and shutting down schools. So the conditions to keep the schools open uh, have not. The government the government is hiding in hiding. Doug Ford is hiding in his cottage or whatever he's doing. I don't know. And I, I, and so I, I think it's inevitable that schools are going to close, whether or not the the government announces it. Yeah, Rima, schooling open closed. What 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 should we be doing for our kids? And or I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know any parents or teachers who want to go back to online schooling. It was a nightmare for just about everybody. Um, and at the same time, people want to be safe. Kids um, at best have had one dose of so they're not fully vaccinated. And um, teachers who are reaching out to me are terrified. Um, parents are terrified. I mean, it, it's it's just a mess. So I think at the very least, and you're absolutely right, Alex, of course, we've been yelling and screaming. I mean, these are the, exactly the things that should have been done, could have been done. Um, we wouldn't be in this situation. Um, every time the government says we have done this, what they mean is that they have gestured towards something um, way too late and it's way too little. So at this point, we are where we are. And at the very least, it, it feels to me like people should have proper PPE. People should have, um, teachers should have N95s. Kids should have proper masks. Um, people, they should have face shields uh, because otherwise, Alex is right. If the proper PPE isn't in place, we're going to see there. There's there's no way that schools can um, stay open given the way that Omicron is moving across the province. And it's and it didn't have to happen. And it is beyond infuriating. Raging Rima this month. <laughs> oh, the Ray, I'll add my raging radical reverend take on this too. Uh, I mean, certainly we're, you know, uh, we're seeing classes of 30 kids still um, in this. Uh, and, and what I, you know, what I love is that, you know, we're only allowed to have 10 people in our home and 25 in our backyard. And yet schools can have a, hundreds in the schoolyard and, and, you know, hundreds inside. Um, uh, and you're right, you're both right. I mean, it should be testing to enter rapid tests, which are almost impossible to find unless you have $180 and want to go to the Eaton Center <laughs> and pay for it. Um, and, uh, and PPE and small classes and HEPA filters. Um, Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario, shout out to them. They were just on television talking about exactly these demands. Um, and it's true, nobody wants to be online. But, you know, um, so it'll it'll be interesting. Meanwhile, uh, you, you got to love um, our Minister of Education, Mr. Lecce, who has been, you know, sharing pictures of himself in coffee shops. And um, <laughs> I mean, it's really it's really quite wild. Um, I mean, just on that note, Rima, I'm going to go to you because this government, I mean, you have to sit across from them when you're in the house um, and uh, it, it is it is kind of shocking to see some of the folk that I used to work with who, you know, do um, have a brain in their heads, you know, uh, kind of seeing what's going on outside and only very occasionally um, raising any kinds of objections. What What is going on across the aisle from you, Rima Burns-McGowan, MPP, <laughs> Beaches East York? 
It is among the most surreal experiences of my life. Um, Alex, I'm an academic from my past life and, and, and I spent my life, you know, doing critical thinking with small groups of students and any one of those classes would make a better government because it is the most, they, it is a daily refusal to look at what's going on in the world around them. A daily on any issue, it doesn't matter which one, whether it's climate or whether it's long-term care homes or whether it's the, the pandemic, it is, or whether it's housing or whether it's evictions, it is a daily refusal to look at the evidence on their doorsteps and and in their and it is and it is a form of denialism. And um, you know, you Alex would probably say that it's purposeful, which I do agree. It is a purposeful refusal to look because they don't want to have that worldview shifted in a way that forces them to act to change those systems that um, benefit those who already have and who are their well-heeled friends. And it is infuriating to watch. Yes, Alex. Yeah, well, Margaret Thatcher said there's no such thing as society. And, and, and that's the ideology of uh, all these right-wingers. And I think the, the pandemic and the economic crisis and the housing crisis and the environmental crisis has shown us there is a society. There very clearly is a society that does not fit in with conservative ideology. And they just want all, all of us to be isolated individuals, particles floating in space. When in fact, there are classes, there are, uh, there's ra racism, there is sexism and homophobia and, and on all of the ills of capitalism. And the solution is a collective solution. And there's our ideology versus their ideology. And the war of ideas is really important. Okay, so uh, Alex, I'm just gonna push you on that point a little bit. Um, so yes, we all know that if nurses, uh, if every worker, um, you know, if there was a general strike in Ontario tomorrow and people just said, no, uh, we're not going into dangerous places, we're going to stop. Um, we know it would have to stop because, you know, simply the system would grind to a halt immediately. So we have this collective power that's not being used. Um, What's the solution to to folk um, not using their collective power, Alex? I think I think it's leadership. That uh, I think you get at the beginning of the pandemic, you actually had all of these work refusals. That workers were saying, "Hell no, I'm not going in," and uh, until there is a proper PPE and distancing and and, and the other thing, and there's an there was an elemental a tendency towards workers' control of health and safety in the workplace to stop that. But unfortunately, the unions and the NDP didn't really take that up, didn't really take that up. And organization really matters. Individual people, people can be brave, people can be not brave, but it is leadership training organization that gives people that collective power and collective strength. So the unions, the NDP have got an obligation here to organize people to get collective action to win rather than tell people you're weak, stay home, respect legality uh, and, and live with capitalist exploitation. Um, so there's the solution. It's organization and leadership. Yeah, Rima. 
So I, I also have watched absolutely incredible acts of organization that have pushed back successfully. Again, uh, in Beaches East York, the tenants unions and people's defense, uh, I worked with them to successfully push back at some of these rapacious landlords and keep people housed and uh, legitimize these tenants unions and force uh, the 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 landlord tenant board to say yes you should have landlord you should have uh, negotiated with the tenants union and you would know I mean I have watched this working and the way that uh, folks pushed back uh, at the encampment clearances which I you know I went to a number of them this summer and the pushing back and saying no John Tory you're lying about what happened there here's what actually happened we you're absolutely right. It did change things and it stopped them from going into Moss Park and it changed the way that they operate, which is incredible. It is the only way. But I've also watched, um, you know, union leaders cozying up to Doug Ford and saying, and this is not to throw the blame on one person or, but, you know, yay, you raised the minimum wage 30 cents. Like, yay. Um, what how are we going to get anywhere if the left is fractured? It doesn't, it's, you know, so yes, everybody has to do their bit. And my, the way that I do this is to say, thank you, community. You're incredible. I will keep supporting and uplifting and organizing, um, helping to organize on a community level. But sometimes I tear my hair out about the organized left in terms of the way that it, you know, operates. <laughs> So some solidarity here on the Radical Reverend show. Um, always good to hear. Alex, you wanted to talk about, and I find this kind of interesting, it must be interesting to the listeners, um, an inflation. Inflation tends to be, I mean, this is something that the, you know, Aaron O'Toole is yelling about. This, this is seen as a kind of conservative issue. Why did you want to talk about inflation? Inflation is a socialist issue. And I always think it's a mistake of the left to avoid yeah, there's this like ballot question. That, yeah, it's like I, idea that if uh, people are thinking about healthcare, they'll vote NDP. But if think, people are thinking about the economy, they'll vote Conservative. And and in fact, no, we can win the battle of ideas. Socialists can win the battle of ideas on the economy. Inflation is a huge issue for working class people. Don't know about you. I go do my groceries. What used to cost me a hundred dollars now cost me 140, 150. Feel like a tank of gas used to cost me 50 bucks, now it costs me 70 bucks, right? That really, that sticker shock plays a huge role uh, in the conscious, consciousness of working class people. And, and, and there's two ways uh, to approach this. One, it's not caught, inflation is not caused by higher wages because wages have been stagnant. And in fact, the government is holding the public sector to 1%. That's scandalous. That's having all the problems with the healthcare workers. No, we must demand that wages keep up with inflation. So that's the one side. That's the frontline uh, argument. But the other side is where does this inflation come from? The government has been printing money. I see Pierre Polyev, right wing so so, uh, I won't swear. Um, I, he, he actually pointed out that the federal government. Last year, the biggest uh, source of government income was printing money, quantitative easing, something like $350 billion. Uh, and that's 
is just printing money. And we, and we, we people might have done Weimar Republic Germany in uh, history class, that if you print money, what that does is reduce the value of money and causes inflation. And where did that printed money go? To bailouts, to corporations and big banks. So imaginary money was created, handed to the rich, um, who used it to inflate their stock prices, and and then it reduced the value of money for everyone else. So all of essential, so food and gas and rent and all the rest of it goes up and up and up and up. The things that working class people spend money on. So we've got to say no bailouts to the banks and big corporations. That. More, more than enough money was given to, gifted to these corporations to buy them out and nationalize them. And at the same time, workers have got to have wages that keep up and exceed inflation. Rima, economy. I, um, and, and just, I, just on this point, I, I just want to point out a little bit of hist history here. Um, uh, and, and that is that um, there's this myth that conservatives are good at, you know, balancing budgets. Um, the simple reality, if you look historically at provincial governments, um, which is where you can only compare because the NDP has never been a federal government in this country, um, that in fact, uh, the NDP is the best at balanced budgets. Um, the conservatives are next and the liberals are worse. But let's let's not talk about balanced budgets. Let's talk about inflation and printing money too. The economy, Rima. <laughs> so I am always frustrated by the unwillingness of um, leftist politicians to talk about the economy. It's crucial. It's absolutely crucial for all the reasons that Alex talks about. And in fact, when you refuse to talk about it, that's where the right comes in and says, hey, things are really expensive, so let's um, cut government services and cut your taxes and that's going to solve your problems which of course it doesn't because then you have to buy those things yourselves and you don't have enough money to do that but nobody fills in that blank so it's absolutely crucial that we talk about it it's crucial that we talk about the fact that to provide services up front ends up saving um, taxpayers money in the long run because it's always cheaper to say house people than it is to put them in to have folks have to be in shelters or in parks. It is always cheaper to house people and to nurture them and to rid barriers like racism and so on and so forth than it is to pay the downstream costs of the the social problems that happen when people don't have what they need to live and to thrive always 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 and that is a point that needs to be made again and again and again until people really understand it secondly it absolutely makes no sense to bail out large corporations whose boards of directors fiduciary duty is to make money for shareholders like that is illogical because again it leads to the all the other problems that i just talked about when your job is to make more money for shareholders rather than to ensure that people are thriving over profits then the system is always going to skew badly and ordinary people are going to lose and until folks start to understand that we're going to end up in this terrible cycle. So those are the those are the narrative issues that I think until people truly that's the narrative that grips and takes hold, we're going to be stuck in this cycle. And this is why I keep coming back to stories. As Thomas King says, the truth about stories is that's all we are. And we have to understand the stories of what make us thrive as opposed to the stories that undermine us. 
Let's uh, just a quick go round on this issue. Um, Alex, you talked about how wages have stagnated. Uh, I was actually speaking to somebody just recently um, and we were talking about, because uh, we were in, back in the personnel field back then in the 80s, um, how uh, you couldn't find somebody in the 80s to work for $10 an hour because at that point, uh, you know, unemployment was very low. Um, and then we had to fight for it in 2006, decades later. Um, wages have stagnated dramatically so. Um, I, again, where's, you know, <laughs> what's a person to do, I guess, is the question, who's, uh, who's on a wage and can't afford, I mean, where, where's the pushing point? And this comes back to our issue again, you know, how to get the collective you know, rising up. Um, where's the pushing point? Because you would have thought it would have been COVID plus that equals, you know, an uprising. Um, we're seeing uprisings to Rima's point, but we're not seeing this kind of collective action, even in the polling. Right now in the polling, it looks like Doug Ford will win again. Um, Rima, I'm going to go to you first and then Alex. So I, again, I, I feel like people, have, <laughs> and, this, and this is a narrative storytelling thing. This is why I go back to the stories, because if, if folks aren't understanding what is happening here, then they're going to keep going back to, you know, he's done an okay job, we're fine. We're not fine, we're not fine. And we're not fine for all of these reasons and we could be so much better and we need to be bold and we need to be we need to take charge of our own future because otherwise this is going to keep happening to us alex well people need to organize unions and and i think they're starting to i actually there has been polling amongst young people in canada usa everybody wants to join a union everybody wants higher pay they want better organizing there's you know stories of people hilariously uh, resigning and, and reaming out their boss. Uh, but it's also, again, I'll bring it back to leadership. It's leadership of the trade unions and the NDP. I don't know if we'll have time about, to talk about the election, but I, I'm glad Rima said be bold, but sometimes the NDP is not bold. Sometimes the NDP leadership is not bold. And, uh, and to actually raise people's sights and be unapologetic unapologetic supporting working class and oppressed people rather than trying to find this mushy middle ground. And, and that's, that's why I think that Ford has recovered because people hear mixed messaging from the unions and from the NDP. Whereas you've got to be socialist, you've got to be radical, you've got to be bold and unapologetic and say, I care about poor and working class people and the rich people, they had a good time and we're gonna focus on the overwhelming majority of society. And that's the road for the NDP to win. That's the road to the NDP to win, road to make people like myself care and get involved. And, and, and then, but we'll see what happens in next year's election. Rima, we've got like two minutes left, so very fast. We'll just go rapid fire. What gives you hope for 2022? Let's end on a positive note. Community, community gives me hope because as I as as we faced all of these issues that we've been discussing for the past hour, I have watched community in Beaches East York step up, step up, and in all of these areas, and even now as I'm trying to find PPE for drop-in centers, community is stepping up and. That's what gives me hope. Alex, what gives you hope? Working class people, oppressed people, people fight. No, they, you can only push people down so much until they come back and they come back and there's more of us than them. Thank you, thank you both. Uh, you give me hope. Uh, Rima uh, Burns-McGallan, uh, MPP Beaches East York and Alex Grant, editor of 
fight back. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show. And oh, by the way, love to hear from you. So always respond when you send me emails, texts, DMs, whatever. Um, and have a happy new year.